Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Mobile hunters, if you're interested in upping your mobile game, then head to tetherednation.com and check out their saddle gear. There are a few things you can actually buy that will help you become a better deer hunter or give you the freedom to hunt any tree or any situation. This is the reason why I started saddle hunting in the first place and why I use Tethered's gear. I can honestly say that Tethered's saddle gear has changed how I hunt for the better. Big tree, little tree, from the ground, it doesn't matter. I'm untethered by my gear to hunt the best setup for the situation, instead of hunting for a tree that my gear can use. My current core setup consists of the Phantom Saddle, Tethered One Sticks, and the Predator Platform, along with an assortment of their accessories. So if you want to up your mobile game, head over to tetherednation.com. If you're like me, you spend lots of time poring over maps, looking at weather data, all in an effort to help predict when and where my best times to hunt will be. It'd be nice if there was a reliable source with all this information in one place. Enter the Spartan Forge app. Unlike some other predictive apps on the market, Spartan Forge was created from military combat intelligence experience tailored for hunters and stands at the nexus of machine learning and white-tailed deer hunting. No more man-made algorithms. This is a predictive model based on real GPS collared deer data, historical and predictive weather, and the next level of mapping imagery, all at my fingertips. I've been using the iOS app this season, and it has replaced all my other mapping tools. Visit SpartanForge.ai and sign up today, or head to your iOS or Android app store. Use the promo code TRUTH to save some money and download it today. Welcome to the Truth and Stand Deer Hunting Podcast brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 293. Today, we are talking buck betting trends with Dr. Bronson Strickland of Mississippi State University. So stay tuned. What is up, everyone? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you are doing well. Hope you are feeling fine and getting all your your deer work done as we are fully in, I guess, full swing now until we get to uh, get to the season. I'm in the final couple weeks of prep before I get ready to leave for Idaho. It's it kind of snuck up on me. Not gonna not gonna lie. Uh, I thought I had more time than I actually. Um, do I think I'm just about six weeks out. I think I fly out the 28th of of August to meet up with my good buddy Wilson in Idaho. Going to chase some elk, do a little backcountry, uh, camping, hunting. Hopefully some arrow slinging is, uh, is part of that equation too. Uh, but time, uh, time will tell. I do have all my gear. Everything's uh, good to go. The, only, the last thing I needed to pick up was actually 
a bigger quiver. I use a really small three arrow quiver when I hunt whitetails. Um, I just don't feel the need to carry more than that. Um, but as we are backpacking into this spot in Idaho, uh, I'm going to be with whatever I got. Um, so picked up a five arrow quiver, just a tight spot one, because that's what I have on my other bow and I want, or my bow. And I just want to be able to change them, you know, make them interchangeable because they have the same, uh, adapter, you know, essentially how they, how they're, uh, uh, attached to your bow. So I just picked up a five arrow, one of those, that way I could take, uh, more arrows into the timber with me. Um, in case, you know, weirder things have happened, fall, break an arrow, whatever, rip fletchings off, something stupid would happen to me. It just seems like that's how, how it works out. But, uh, with that, I did do a little bit of deer work this past week. I did have been kind of on the mend since I got back from, well, since I went on vacation and got back from vacation, I ended up tearing some rib muscles, um, at jujitsu practice and have been kind of, uh, on the mend since it went from not even being able to put my pants on to actually being able to move. And so, uh, this past weekend, or I guess, you know, starting, I guess on Friday, um, I started feeling a little bit better, um, to where I actually went out to my buddy, um, uh, AJ's shop, Bob and AJ's archery shop to pick up my new bow. Cause it was still just sitting out there since I left for uh, vacation and he had it all set up and ready for me. I just needed to get out there and set up my, uh, set up my sight tapes. And it was really the first time I got to put a bunch of arrows through it. You know, well, I'll say a bunch of arrows in quotations cause I was still kind of on the men. So it wasn't like I was able to fire off a ton of arrows. Um, but I was able to shoot it like prior to him setting it up, you know, and kind of test it and stuff like that. As I was kind of looking at some different bows, um, in the Hoyt RX seven, the carbon, uh, Hoyt RX seven is what I ended up uh, getting. And, uh, he had it all set up for me. So I went out there and put some arrows through it and, uh, it shoots like a dream. Uh, it, it's, it's an awesome shooting bow. Um, it tuned up really quickly for him, which was, which was killer. Um, I was, the reason I kind of went out is cause he was, uh, kind of dialing in my previous bow with my MMT arrows from Exodus. So that's kind of what kind of set things in motion. I wasn't looking for a new bow per se. Uh, but once I shot that one, I was kind of like, eh, maybe I would like to have a new bow. Um, so went out there and did that, got all dialed in, you know, shot from 20 out to 60, got my sight tape set. So felt good about, uh, felt good about that. Need to do some more shooting with that to make sure I'm just kind of familiar with it and feel, you know, super comfortable with it. But at, at this point, I was uh, lacing some dimes out to 60 yards uh, with that piece as I was kind of, uh, getting the sight tape set up. So feel pretty good with that already. And to be honest, I don't think anywhere that Wilson and I are going to be in the section of Idaho will be in. I'm going to have any shots that are going to require me to shoot uh, probably beyond 30 yards would be my would be my guess. So that was the one kind of hunting related thing I was able to do, which was uh, which was nice to be able to fling, fling a few arrows. And then yesterday. Uh, when I say yesterday, it's uh, Saturday, I, uh, got up in the, the ribs were feeling well enough to where I felt like I could go out and make a venture out. There was a handful of cameras I needed to get out into the timber. And, uh, and there was one that I wanted to check and truth be told, the cam check that I did was underwhelming, which isn't surprising. A lot of times I don't start getting my good inventory until later in the sea, uh, later in the summer. Um, August timeframe seems to be the time, uh, time frame where I start to get the, uh, I guess the best inventory of what bucks are kind of around the area. Um, reason being is I, I don't really have food sources or anything that I'm playing, uh, playing the inventory game with. It's a lot of, you know, setting stuff up in the timber using, uh, community scrapes, um, and, and things of that nature. So sometimes they're, uh, sometimes they're hit and miss. Um, but to be honest, you know, to be fair, I guess I only checked one camera and I ended up hanging three additional cameras. Um, and so we'll 
hopefully here in the next uh, probably next weekend I'll get out and do like a more full kind of camera check on uh, on at least the local areas. I do have some cameras, of course, up in the the Big Woods piece that I've been kind of scouting and stuff like that. Early returns from some cell cameras and stuff like that. It looks pretty promising. Uh, at least, you know, there's one really, really good deer, uh, that we have on, uh, camera that we got. I think it was, uh, right at the beginning of July and he's a tank. So, um, that at least, you know, and there's, there's, uh, two other cameras that I know of that really kind of produce really good inventory. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of banking on those being, um, good as well. But as far as locally goes, um, not a whole lot to chase at the moment or not a whole lot to, uh, get me excited necessarily. But with that, we're going to go ahead and do, uh, some quick housekeeping for you guys before we jump into today's episode. So as you guys know, our buddies over at Exodus kick off the velvet campaign around this time every year, and it is the official start to deer season. And they like to help get the ball rolling with everyone's summer scouting. I know when velvet fest hits for me, it means it's time to get the cameras ready as I just did this past weekend, but got the last couple out, get them deployed and ready for the season. So from July 15th, through August 19th, they'll have some awesome prizes for people who use the hashtag VelvetFest on social media showing their whitetail adventures. Also, if you're in the market for a trail camera, VelvetFest will be the perfect opportunity to get ready for the for the season. Exus will be sending out exclusive savings through their email newsletter throughout the campaign. But to get things started, save 20% on any multiple Exodus render or any render bundle for the first 100 orders. Use the code VELVETFEST, all one word, V-E-L-V-E-T-F-E-S-T, to lock in these awesome summer savings. Every single camera order comes with a random prize card also. I've been told uh, through a little, I guess through the grapevine, that these include some huge deals, even including the all-new Exodus MMT Tailored Arrow. Over the last seven years, Exodus has consistently shown they build quality gear that flat out works, and of course, they have the best truck camera warranty, period. Every single camera is backed by a five-year warranty and even comes with a theft and damage coverage. That's right, literally half a Uh, half a decade you'll be covered by the Exodus five-year warranty but more than likely you won't need it because their cameras are already built to last they also launched the Exodus MMT this summer a tailored arrow built to your specifications using nothing but the highest grade components period head to their website and use the 3d builder and experience the best shooting hunting arrow available I actually just shot mine in this past week they fly awesome I was actually sighting my sight tape in with a little bit of crosswind and they were landing. I was pounding X's and I, I, I hit X's, uh, every now and then, but not nearly as frequently as I was, as I was just even just sighting in the sight tape. I was actually shooting super, uh, super, super accurately, uh, in comparison to, you know, even my previous, previous bow and the setup that I was shooting, uh, shooting previously so be sure to head uh, to take part in the velvet fest celebration and be sure to tag exodus uh in your social media post because they'll want to see what you guys have going on this summer so with that we're going to go ahead and jump into today's show have an awesome share for you guys today um i should have had uh bronson strick dr bronson strickland on earlier bronson uh dr strickland is from msu deer lab he works with uh, mississippi state university and they do a ton of deer uh research there um they've done a ton of stuff around you know buck uh movement uh nocturnal you know how deer react to pressure things of that nature but there was a, a post they had um over the course of i want to say it was like the spring or maybe even like late winter where they we're following a particular deer around and looking at this buck's bedding behavior from October through November. And when they made these posts, it was, um, 
it caused a little bit of a kerfluffle, maybe you, you would say, because uh, it really kind of challenges what we think we know about buck betting and its consistency and all the all things related. Now, to be fair, you know, and, and Dr. Strickland kind of talks about this a little bit in the podcast, they are doing additional research around this. This is just kind of the first step in their first findings, which pose a lot more questions maybe than it, than it provides answers. But what you see, you know, in the post when they kind of provided the scatter plot in, you know, and what Dr. Uh, Strickland talks about in this podcast um, is really kind of eye-opening in terms of how we uh, use buck bedding to hunt and how we maybe, um, in some instances, uh, maybe not doing ourselves as many favors as we thought that we were doing. So with that, I won't, I won't uh, belabor this up front any longer. I'll just kind of jump to the, uh, to the contents. So you guys can get the, uh, the buck bedding information as the season is fast approaching. But as always, I want to thank you all for listening. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. And today I have on a gentleman who, man, I want to say it's probably been at least two years since I've had you on, but I've got one of my favorite people to talk to when I really want to get into the nitty gritty of deer data and uh, scratch my uh, my data kind of nerd itch, if you will, <laughs> as you yeah. know, I, I deal with a lot of that in my in my uh, in my work life uh, data. So it's uh, it's not surprising that I, I enjoy that as well in, in my uh, in my passion projects. But I have on none other than Mr. Dr. Bronson Strickland. What's going on, man? How are you? Hey, I'm doing very well, Clint. And and uh, as we age, I think. Uh, we forget how long it's been. I, I want to venture it's been like three or maybe four years ago. Has it's it? been a while. I think it. I think it was pre-COVID. Wow. When we had our last conversation, it was yeah. definitely it was definitely pre-COVID. Um, but man, yeah, time flies. I guess when you're having fun, because I, I know we did like a. I want to say it was like a mini series section together where we did. I want to say three or four podcasts together. Which were yeah. awesome and people absolutely absolutely loved. So it's shame on me for not kind of getting back in touch with you sooner and having you uh, having you back on. We'll just try not to make it so long the next time. How's that? Yeah, that's just fine. Good to talk to you as always. Absolutely. So how have uh, how have you been, man? How was uh, always like to start off with just kind of how your hunting season has uh, has been at least last year or maybe even <laughs> with our with our precursor to this maybe the past three years. How how have things been? Oh, it's been good uh, within the context of the time that I have. And yeah. uh, that, that's one thing I'm really looking forward to retirement or some semblance of retirement in the future is that I, I don't really get the opportunity to do the thing that would really be the most fun to me. And what I was able to used to do when I was younger, and that is, you know, chasing a particular buck. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I just really, mine is, uh, you know, every week or every other week you have a day afternoon or morning and you just get out there and I, I don't really have a, a way to, to put all that together strategically mm -hmm. to really go after a deer. So in that context, it hadn't been good at all, but, but in terms <laughs> of the, the other side of it is, uh, we eat a lot of venison. Yes. And uh, last year and years before, I've, I've been very, very fortunate to harvest uh, numerous does. And uh, th this past year for sausage, it was it was nice. Uh, e even though I, I despise them being on the landscape, I was able to harvest uh, three wild pigs. Oh, nice. And so that added that added to the sausage collection yes. we were able to make. So took advantage of a bad thing in that regard. So nice. All in all, very good. I, I cannot complain. Nice. When? Uh, how soon is your retirement date coming up uh, in the in the near future? 
No, no, no time soon. <laughs> <laughs> I owe, I owe off to work. I go. It's, it's still quite a ways away. That's yeah. right. That's right. What, uh, <laughs> so, you know, it, a chase in a particular buck is one of those things where, um, every year I tell myself I'm not going to, <laughs> and then every year I end up finding one, or maybe he resurfaces from last year you know, or the prior year that I have some, you know, intel on him, uh, about that maybe gives me a little bit more, um, of a, of an opportunity, I guess is one, is one way to say it. Uh, but I try to go into every season and try to hunt for opportunity really. Right. And so I'm just mm -hmm. always curious people who really, and, and I end up usually defaulting back to the opportunity kind of approach. Cause I'll, I'll spend maybe part of October kind of trying to get a beat on a particular deer. And it's happened last year. I played cat and mouse with one particular deer for a couple of weeks and it was, you know, I'd miss him by like, you know, two hours, one place or something like that, where I, you know, he passed through right before I got there, uh, in the tree that morning, or maybe, you know, right after I left the tree after dark or whatever the case was, you know, I think the closest I, I missed him by at one point was like a half hour. Um, he came by a half mm. hour after dark at the, at this location where I was that, um, that evening. And so then I usually revert back to kind of just chasing for opportunity, like a good buck. And I'll have kind of a few that I've kind of marked as like those who I'm willing to, um, that I'm willing to go after or willing to, you know, willing to put an arrow through. I'm always curious yeah. with guys who liked that really, really enjoy hunting that singular deer. Like, what is it for you that about hunting that singular buck that really is the thing that does it for you? Uh, I, I guess in my opinion, it would be like putting a puzzle together. Mm -hmm. It's it's just kind of figuring out the the patterns of deer or particular buck and um, and and just being strategic uh, about where you go and it's uh, you know anytime and, and you know because I I prefer to bow hunt I end up rifle hunting a lot to make sure I get enough venison for the for the freezer but uh, it's just really gratifying to to hang a stand and be that close to a buck or or to deer activity so I, I can't speak for all these other people that have you know a buck on their list and pursue them but to me that would be the 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 feeling of fulfillment and patterning and, and being successful at that 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 would be the positive feedback for me right right now i i, I get it that's kind of always my uh i think it's always the rationale that i have for why you know, I, I love the strategy part of it. That's why I like bow hunting. I like to get close, um, especially if you can beat them at their own game. It's, you know, to your point, it's, it's that much more, um, more gratifying. And, and I have to imagine as much as you get the op opportunity to, you know, observe deer or observe deer data, you know, it, it's probably even uh, that much of a stronger pull toward focusing on any particular buck because you have, um, a certain level of knowledge that maybe the average person doesn't have like a lot of, and we'll get into this a little bit with around the bet around some betting stuff around what is kind of uh hunter knowledge or colloquial hunt, hunter knowledge versus what you've actually observed and what data has shown and mm -hmm. proved out. Right. So it probably kind of entices you to say like, let me see if as a hunt from a hunter perspective, academically, I know this, can I get right. this to play out from a hunting scenario? Yeah, that, that, always comes into play and and uh you know i, I like to hunt I, here, here's a great example here's a real good example of what i know or what what the data tell me mm. and then my my behavior as a hunter is uh paying having more or less confidence about 
when I hunt based on weather, mm. for example. Uh, a lot of that, if I'm honest with myself, a lot of that is about comfort being outside. It's either too hot or it's raining or overwhelmingly, and you know, there have been a few studies here and there, but but overwhelmingly deer and bucks are going to move every single day. But I just don't think we allocate an equal amount of effort, you know, every single day to hunt them. So that, that's certainly something that comes into play. And one of the others would be, and, and most recently with like putting GPS collars on bucks, it's uh, it's just really difficult to pattern them spatially. Like temporally, you can still pattern them on kind of when they're going to move, but they move around a lot more on the landscape, at least in the southeast or at least in Mississippi than than we give them credit for. So they're they're not just always holed up in a particular spot. They move around a good bit. Right. And the answer to that is you you just have to hunt a lot. Right. You know, if you just can't go on that one particular time and you're probably not going to be successful, you're going to have to that that particular point relative to cover and in between food and all that, you're probably going to need to hunt that, I don't know, five or ten times before you might have an opportunity. Because he may, he may not be in the neighborhood this week, and he might be in the neighborhood next week. Right, and that kind of goes back to the idea of what you were mentioning earlier about retirement. <laughs> right, right. It's it, yeah. It's not a surprise. You know, there's a few guys that I know, um, you know, that manage to kill a target buck pretty much every year um, with very limited time time off, and and they're the rare occasions. You know what I mean? Where it's like there's one guy. In, particular that i know that like if he knows that there's a deer alive and he has three days he'll kill that deer in three days it's just almost like wow like, like clockwork like he's he's that you know but he's he's honed that skill over time and usually he has probably a couple years maybe of uh intel on that particular deer so he's not starting it's not like he just saw the buck and like is like okay now i'm gonna figure out how to kill it sometimes that is the case but a lot of times, you know, it's him kind of knowing a buck and going, all right, this year, that's the guy. And, you know, I've got mm-hmm. three good weather days to do it and I'm going to, I'm going to make it happen. I'm curious, and this is, you know, not on the topic of the betting stuff I want to talk about initially, but are there anything, you know, so the hunting kind of, uh, I guess, general knowledge is right. is like cold fronts, you know, when you get a little bit of precip, you know, uh, any type of kind of weather change just in, in general, like those are typically good days that you want to focus on. Have you seen in like, you know, any of the research you guys might have done, are, are there any, are, are there any kind of really, really strong kind of indicators that's going to kind of create mo- uh, movement more so than more so than others than uh, that you have found from a weather standpoint? Not, not, not really. No. The, we haven't seen anything that would compel me uh, that this particular day is going to be so much be- overwhelmingly better than the day before or the day after. Hmm. Now, that that said, you started talking earlier about data and so forth, but um, w- we do see some tendencies. So, you know, and, and a lot of the ways we'll, we'll try to, to analyze these data is that we'll use uh, at a population scale, how many ever bucks on a particular day we have collared. And we'll look at something like daily movement rate. And there's a lot of assumptions buried within that. So we'll have daily movement rate over time. And then what you have to do, Clint, or the way we rationalize is the best way to do it. 
is you look at a deviation from the norm. Mm -hmm. So if you start and, you know, for down here with our deer, so, you know, you go to October 1st to January 31st, you're going to see big swings in movement activity, but it's relative to the rut. Right. So over time here in our context, come December, you're going to have movement rates twice as much as you might have the, the month before. And then in the post rut, you're going to see those movement rates go down. So we have a generalized, like an average line that moves over time. And then day by day, we look at the, the deviation from the norm. So that spike, what caused the spike in activity okay. or what caused this compression in activity? And we relate that to different weather events. And you will end up with some very weak correlations. Hmm. But, but then the next step, Clint, is then you look at, you know, being statistical here, we call it effect size. And that is, we look at how much did it deviate from the average? And so you might, and I, I'm just making up these numbers here. Yeah. So let's say that uh, every single day, the norm movement rate was 4,000 4, yards per day or 5,000 yards, what, what, whatever. And then we have the spike that is related, correlation, not causation, but it's correlated to a weather event. And that spike is another 250 yards. Mm. So on average, they're going to be moving, let's just say, you know, 4,000 yards, 3,000 yards. And on this good quote, air quote, good day, they moved another two or three or 400 yards. Right. Well, that's very, very different than saying the deer were really moving this day or the deer were shut down and not moving at all. That is, that is not what we see with the data at all. Right, right. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, when you look at it from, I guess, we'll talk about movement here for a second. So like the October lull, right? That's one of the things that you hear a lot of people talk about. And a lot of people stay out of the woods during that, during that time frame. Actually, it's personally become probably my favorite time to hunt um, because I'm dealing with a lot fewer people usually in the woods mm -hmm. at, at that time. Um, the deer are shifting, food sources are shifting significantly, particularly, you know, during that, that period. They're also starting to ramp up just like a little bit in terms of, um, you know, getting ready to hit that kind of pre-rut kind of stage. And so like I, it becomes, it's probably one of the last times for me that I can predict based on my scouting, what might, what might happen before kind of, you know, all, all heck kind of breaks, breaks loose, so to speak. So can you talk right. a little bit about what you have seen just in terms of movement in general throughout the season and particularly the October lull, because my understanding is, and what I have seen observed as a hunter is that I still see a fair amount of movement, actually more movement than what, you know, most would probably anticipate or think in that kind of October, let's call it like the 10th through like the 16th or 17th. Like I actually find a lot of, it's not in fringe areas. It's really kind of in core areas is what I've, is what I've personally found, but what have mm -hmm. you guys seen from the data in terms of movement and around that time frame? Let, let, let's frame something up yeah. first is for a lot of the U S that, that works to say, quote, October lull. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> if we were going to say that in Mississippi relative to, say, the, the, the time clock uh, from the Midwest, we, we would have to call it the November lull. Right. And Got it. Yeah. So, Clint, like, like where you're at, where is the peak of the rut relative to October? Usually, I think the peak breeding date is right around, I want to say, like the 6th, if I'm not mistaken, of November. Of November? Yeah. 
fifth, sixth, like that, okay. yeah, that time frame, I think is the the pre peak breeding date. Yeah. Okay. So, so we're about a month to five to five weeks behind you. So what, what we see, which again can be in direct conflict with a, a lot of hunters and a lot of very popular hunters and mm-hmm. TV programs and all that stuff is this lull takes place. But when we look at the, the data, there, there is definitely a lull before the rut. But there was also a quote, a lull before that. So it's not like it's not like when we end up summer and bachelor groups break up, we don't see a spike in activity and then it dips down and we see low activity. And then, of course, we see another spike with the pre-rut and the rut. That's not what we see at all. We just see baseline activity that is relatively low and a huge spike up doubling or tripling uh daily movements when it comes to the pre-rut and all that is correlated you know with scraping activities and all that sort of stuff but it just kind of all comes together so it's kind of weird it's like when you say a lull a lull relative to what right yeah a lull relative to the rut well yeah of course there is right but a lull relative to september no we we don't see that right and i think we're uh, i think where a lot of people get that right is they're they're basing their activity kind of uh, perception, right, or understanding off of maybe trail cameras that they've placed to capture summer inventory or in inventory or early mm-hmm. fall inventory, or areas that they might hunt during the earlier part of the season that might be closer to field edges and stuff like that before the pressure gets to you know where those are still the primary food sources before acorns start dropping and things of that nature. And so I think it's probably more of a um, consequence of people being in the wrong spot versus yeah. the deer actually lulling, so to speak, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would call it that there is there's a change, but it, but it's probably more of a spatial shift in the where the buck is at versus overall his movement activity is less. Right. Right. I think that corresponds very well with, with what you've observed. And that and and food is changing at that point too. So yeah. When we do see these shifts, they they are typically happening b- before the rut and after the rut, and not during the rut. Right. It's kind of like once they once they decide this is where I'm going to be for two to three weeks during the rut. That's typically where they stay. Right. And if they're going to you know get up and move a couple miles away, that usually happens pre or post rut. Hmm. That's a nice, like we'll have to keep that in mind as we get into some of the betting stuff because I thought some of the stuff you guys kind of dug up was. Uh, was really interesting but i have one i have another personal question about your kind of liking to kind of target a particular deer so if you're going to target a particular deer are you going to focus in on uh you know bedding areas are you going to focus in on potentially known travel corridors are you going to focus in on areas that might be you know primary or kind of like uh um scrape hubs or something like that what would be the thing if you're going to kind of target a particular deer like where is the place you feel most confident you have the best opportunity for the right type of encounter hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain your feet are carrying the load without the right boots you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge at midway usa we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier with just a few clicks of a mouse you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. 
For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Man, Clint, that's that's really difficult. Um, <laughs> for, for, even personally, because I'm not that successful at it. But again, I, I just use what, what the data tell us and so forth. You know, there's a real context here relative to the, the availability of bedding cover and how much cover you have on your property and adjacent properties. So let, let me give you a, a, a very simplified example is, is if there is only one part of the property you hunt that is offering cover, that, that is very advantageous to you as a hunter because you know, you know where the starting point is going to be. Then it is just figuring out where is that buck going to go relative to either exploring for a rut or for food. But a lot, and, and again, my context is the South and especially Mississippi, um, we, we usually have cover is far more prevalent on the landscape than quality food. So there are more places to bed and hide than there are, quote, destination food sources. Got it. So within that context, um, how would you figure out where he's bedding? And and I would just say that would probably start with me uh, using cameras or me glassing from a food source and at least trying to figure out what part of the food plot is he entering, what trail or couple trails might he be using. And then via my own explorations on foot and Google Earth, figuring out what are the most likely places he's bedding. And then I don't want to go trampling around in there and disturbing the buck, but at least I think I could narrow down in the 360 degrees that he could be coming into the food plot. Right. That it would be coming at least from this direction. Right. Right. No, that, that makes, that makes sense. So it sounds like, you know, what you, what you would like is to kind of narrow down where he's starting from, you know, where he might be, you know, going, going to and then try to find that comfortable interception point to where you're close enough but not going to kind of uh shoot yourself in the foot so to speak right is that kind of a fair way to exactly yeah. yep exactly yeah so i know i've kind of alluded to this a few different times as we've been kind of just uh chatting here but a few months ago i was i was on instagram was you know just perusing through and and came across some stuff that you guys had posted that was you know really interesting information that was related to to buck bedding and how many beds a a buck is is using. Um, but mm-hmm. so just to kind of start, like, what was the gen? And I know you guys, I think, have some additional research planned beyond this. Is just kind of the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. But what was right. the genesis of just kind of these findings? Like, where did that come from? Where did it start from? Like, I guess the hypothesis or the idea to kind of explore this. Um, it, it probably started with my bias and I, I probably speak for a lot of people at least my age that there was always this hunter wisdom or conventional wisdom that there are just a couple places on the landscape where a buck is going to bed and and i'm not talking about like a big like a sanctuary area i'm talking about specific spots you know where, where a buck is going to bed and 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 that's his bedroom and, you know read that a lot the, the buck's bedroom where he's right. located and so i just thought you know what a wonderful opportunity we we have this data here i'm going to get in here and tinker and just see if that is indeed the case and um 
you know, we can we can get pretty reliable signals fr from the data. Uh, with our data, we had these collars program where they were sending a signal every 15 minutes. Hmm. And so when you get, you know, four or five or eight or more sequential locations within an area, you know, 10 yards by 10 yards, you can pretty safely conclude that 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 buck is bedded. Right. And, and so we just started kind of playing around with that and seeing um, how many bucks or excuse me, how many beds a particular buck is using and how are they differing from day to day. And so generally that that's really kind of how it started. And uh, along with that, we were simultaneously doing some research on trying our best way to, to quantify what are the, the vegetative characteristics that make up for a bedding area versus uh, within 360 degrees at random around the bedding area, what is different about that? Why did the buck choose this spot and not the spot 30 yards northeast, southwest, whatever? Right. And the, the, the answer was exactly what you would think it is. So there, there was no Nobel Prize won <laughs> with, with the five. And, and it's just cover. It's just very developed side screen co cover. Side, side cover, yeah. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, a buck can literally, you know, stand on its feet or be in its bed and and he is completely, you know, concealed. And, you know, then we, we start looking at our landscape and, you know, these little spots are all over the place. And they're, they're on field borders. They're within, uh, within a forest. It would be, you know, great management advice here would be just like hinge cutting a spot. You know, these are all places that absolutely can turn in, into beds. And, and so we just started quantifying that and following a couple deer and just looking at how many different beds they were using w within the day and say over a week's time. And it, it was just shocking. There was very little fidelity for a buck coming back to a particular bed. He did over a week's time. He may have bedded at a spot twice, but generally it was at a different bed uh, each day yeah. and a couple times each day. Yeah. That was the thing that I was kind of surprised surprised by like i remember when i saw i actually didn't see the original the first post i caught i saw the second post you guys made and which was kind of fortunate for me because then i was able to go back and look at the first one so to kind of see like how it like you know the the first one and the second one and i actually messaged my my buddy greg and he's a big bed hunter and i was mm. like oh he's gonna love this you know and I, and he's had success over beds i got a lot of friends who hunt that way i find beds but i don't find enough of them necessarily like i can find an area where i feel like okay this is an area a buck likes to spend a, a uh i don't want to say substantial amount of time but more time than uh he would like to spend in any other place within 300 yards you know let's just say as an example right like this is the spot where there's a bed there's some concentrated signs so he clearly like this likes this over the area that's 300 yards in circumference around this just as an example right mm -hmm. that's kind of yeah. how i approach it because i am not a a good quote unquote bed hunter. I have friends who will literally set up on a bed and shoot a deer in a bed. Right. And, and what wow. I thought was really interesting about, you know, what you showed was that there's, there's certainly skill to that. No, not denying it, but there's also like a certain portion of, of, of luck as well, just based on the randomness that, and I don't want to say it was randomness because there could have been like wind influence or whatever the case was, but that they weren't as consistent betting as you'd one would think. And like, and I knew from the first post, that first one that I read, I was like, the argument initially is going to be someone is going to ask about, 
uh, rut versus earlier in the year because they say that they're more predictable earlier in the year, and that just didn't necessarily hold water, which I thought was pretty pretty fascinating. Didn't but, pan out, right? Right. And, and <laughs> I, I don't want to bury the lead, but I, I want to get to that. But the first thing I wanted to ask, just so people kind of know that are listening to this, this buck was three and a half years old, which is pretty uh, like a, an appropriate kind of sample of what most people are chasing, especially if you're hunting, you know, if you're hunting public land, then it's, that's probably about three and a half to four years old. It's probably what you're looking at in most States, not mm-hmm. Iowa or Kansas withstanding things like that. So I thought, and then you guys looked at two different kind of time segments and this all happened with this particular buck on this particular parcel. So before we kind of dive into some of the nuance, can you just talk a little bit about the general habitat, the terrain, food opportunity, pressure, things of that nature. Like just, I guess, give us a little bit of like a Cliff Notes version of this parcel. Okay. Um, So it it is in a part of Mississippi. It's not what we call our uh, Delta region, which is our agricultural region. Um, And and so, you know, I'm I'm generalizing here, but but I tell people this part of Mississippi looks like Iowa. I mean, it is, you know, 360 degrees at its crops and it is primarily corn and soybean and sometimes rice and other things like that. Um, this where, where we conducted this study uh, was not in that region, but it is still in a region full of agriculture. Okay. And so you may have uh, 20 to 40 percent uh, of the landscape is agriculture. And, and again, pr- primarily soybean and, and corn. So you really have this very uh, developed, you know, matrix of woods, of a forest, of upland forest, of bottomland forest, and then where it is conducive, you you will have big ag fields. And so it, it really sets itself up to where you have all the components of a of a thriving deer population, and also you can grow really really big bucks. And so it's. It's one of the places in Mississippi. It's a big buck region. Right. And for that, and for, for the reasons I mentioned, you have food, you have cover, you can grow a deer population, you can grow numbers, and, and you have a lot of food. And so if you were Google Earth looking down, just, just imagine, uh, don't, don't think of Iowa, but maybe think of uh, Missouri or, or something like that, where you have forest land, but about 20, 30, 40% of it would be opened up, you know, with, with agricultural fields. Yeah, that makes sense. Actually, I'm actually looking at one of the posts now. and It's funny. The aerial does remind me of whenever I was hunting Missouri, very reminiscent of mm-hmm. what, I, what I ran into there. And that's a great kind of, uh, I guess, a uh, proxy for people who maybe aren't as familiar with, with Mississippi. Um, so what time of times of year uh, was the, data gathered. I mean, I'm supposing that he was collared, so he you were gathering it throughout the year, but you guys looked at two specific kind of time periods to kind of compare and contrast, right? Yeah, so we did a, a peak of the rut, and f- for this area, the peak is essentially Christmas. It's it's centered on uh, around Christmas, and then I got to go back and look about it. Yeah, and then we did pre-rut, which which was October, so that, that's during both season for us, October one through seven was was the other period right and so so it sounded like you answered this a little bit earlier but you were defining betting by the kind of proximity and time stamp of his like his movement i guess is one way to say it right like so the dots yeah. that are uh, in those areas that were close together they might have just like over a certain kind of period of time 
might have just been him getting up, stretching his legs, slightly moving, but that was still like where he was 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 betting for that duration of time, right? Is that correct? Yeah, that, that's correct. I, I would just add one thing is the, the way we look at it is, um, so when we get a location, it, it is often uh, not precise down to the, the meter or centimeter or foot. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you're using satellites to triangulate the location and that's really, really good. But, but every time we get a location that that's part of the technology, it also gives us an error rate you know, plus or minus. Right. So here it is, here's the latitude and longitude, you know, plus or minus 10 meters, five meters, 30 meters, something like that. So essentially we look at the consecutive locations that are within the boundary of the error associated with those locations. Okay. And yeah, and just really, I mean, it's not that sophisticated. You can, you can literally see when the points are clustered together, and then when the buck starts moving, it's it's really obvious. So we can tell when he got up from his bed. Right, right. So <clears throat> extracting uh, uh, Doctor Strickland from this conversation for one second, and and and, and inputting Hunter uh, Bronson Strickland into the conversation. What was your uh, what was your initial kind of thought like prior to like, you know, looking at the data, like specifically kind of as you, as you'd mentioned, like you kind of went in and started like saying, Hey, can we kind of take a look at this and pair this in a way that we can kind of understand the, the betting opportunities? What was your kind of general thinking? What did you think you were going to find? I guess is the simple way to ask it. Well, here's how I respond. Here's how I reacted was the first response was, dang, that's interesting. So there's my academic, that's my academic response. <laughs> My my hunter's response was, "Dang, that sucks." <laughs> <laughs> that might be the most like appropriate. That was kind of almost the same reaction I had. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Oh man, it, it's, it's a, you know, you just can't pattern them that easily w- within again within the, the landscape context we we are studying. Right. In, in other places, I think you can pattern them a lot more easily, but but down here, not so much. Right. Did you, when you were kind of poking around in the data and stuff like that, was there anything that you could kind of see, again, maybe not causation, but maybe correlation, that was a, uh, a stronger, I don't even want to say predictor because it's not, it's not causation, but a, a, a stronger kind of correlation to a particular betting area? Because when I look at the, the map, you know, there's certain areas that have one visit, you know, one has three, the or whatever the case is, whatever the number is, it, was there anything that you could kind of tie to that uh, increased number of visits to that particular betting area um, as an influence or as it, a correlation? It, it, the, the one thing, and, and I, have, I have to be careful here because this is, this is where I've, I, I got to use the caveat that there's a lot more research needs to go into this. And, We've only done this with a handful of bucks over a small period of time. And our, our student is going to be looking at the entire data set over a couple of years. So it's, it's going to be far more in-depth research. But, you know, what I, what I could see, and I think our post demonstrated this, it was like when the deer, for whatever reason, because of the proximity to food or potentially the proximity to a doe social group, when the buck decided to bed in a larger block of woods, you would see a lot more spatial variability in where the, 
the buck chose to bed in that, say, 50-acre wood block or 80-acre wood block. There might be three or four spots in there. But there were absolutely spots that were secluded or off the beaten path where he would go time and time again. And so one particular example was we had a we had uh, kind of a fence row. And when you, when you kind of zoom in on Google, it looks like there's kind of a, a good cover patch that's really developed right there. And it may be a plum thicket or a sumac thicket or something like that. But evidently, it was a place where that buck is going to go and probably not have any interference whatsoever. There, there was also a place on to the south of that post that in that field, there was a low spot likely holding some water. And that's the very reason it was not cultivated for agriculture. Hmm. And so that there were trees, brush, cover, et cetera. And he would visit that place quite often. And when you look at those places, it's like, man, it, it would be very difficult to approach those places without the buck knowing you were coming. Yeah. Yeah. Cause uh, I'm looking at, that I'm not going to say impossible, but really difficult. <laughs> yeah. Cause I'm looking at that spot now and it's just, it's so open around it that you would have a mm -hmm. really hard time approaching him to where he wouldn't be able to see you or smell you, you know, at that, at that point. Cause if he can't smell you, he's going to be looking at, if he's not smelling you from that direction, he'd be looking in that direction most likely Yeah, to cover yeah. his, you know, to cover, you know, his, his surroundings. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, to your to your point as a as a as a hunter, it's like man, that sucks because it's they're not really predict as predictable <laughs> as as we want to as we want to think that they are, and it kind of flies right. in the face not just the predictability of their betting because I think the deer hunter you know wisdom is that yeah they have predictable betting and then if you told someone that like yeah but they're not super, they're not as predictable as you think it's like I think the first response would be like. Well, yeah, sure. As you hit like pre-rut and rut, like they become unpredictable because they they're they're moving a lot, you know. And that would be, I think, the conventional kind of thinking. I mean, that's what we've all been kind of led to believe and taught and have all consumed and kind of lived and died by and has have probably hunted that way. And it was interesting mm -hmm. when I saw this this post because I was surprised to see that the early October uh, data points were way less consistent than the rut data points. And mm -hmm. it, you could have told me, I would have believed you and not even batted an eyelash if you would have said, Clint, they don't bed nearly as consistent as you think that they do. I'd be like, eh, seems reasonable. It's a wild animal, a lot of variables. You mm -hmm. know, they probably, you know, do a lot of different things that we don't understand for a lot of survival reasons that we maybe aren't, uh, that we don't fully grasp. But I would have had a harder time believing somebody if they said, yeah, they bed way more consistent uh, during uh, pre-rut, you know, the peak of the rut than they do earlier in the year. And I, mm -hmm. my con like conventional thinking would have been, well, October, like they're, they're, they're really still just on that, where's the food source? And I would assume they would bed nearby wherever their food source is. And so even if it is maybe not 100% predictable within like they're going to be in this bed all the time, I would assume it would be in a bed that would be not too far away in the general area. But man, the scatter plot for the October timeframe was just something that I did not, um, I would, yeah. I would have never guessed, you know, in the, in the tightness, relative tightness of the scatter plot of the peak rut, it was just, I feel like you almost would have a better chance of, of killing a buck, a bedded buck or buck hunting bedding during the rut timeframe based on what I'm mm -hmm. looking at. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And 
we have a couple hypotheses and, and that's all we can propose is here are some ecologically some reasonable explanations but heck we we don't know and we never will but so when you look at the october data which again are far more scattered my my hunter slash conventional wisdom would have also been initially it's going to be much more of a pattern that time of year Mm -hmm. it is going to be a lot more like say a buck bachelor group where every single day they're going to this field and they're going to go bed down here but we actually see a lot more movement and a lot more what what appears random. But what could be going on is, number one, there's very few hunters, relatively few hunters on the landscape at that time. That's literally when when these data uh, are from the very first week of archery season. So there's little disturbance. There's also changes, changes going on with mast availability. So you may have some hard mass maybe just starting to drop and a buck is working through there trying to figure out where those places are at we also have uh crops so we have those summer cash crops uh what is left in those fields and then we have food plots being planted so we also have a lot of variability potentially in food on the landscape with little human pressure right if we fast forward that two months everything's changed uh what what grain or whatever was left in the ag fields that's probably been exhausted the agronomic foods are going to be food plots uh the mass at this point may or may not have been completely exhausted by now and the deer know that hunters are out there the pressure is on so he just may be in in fewer places right now because he knows he's being hunted yeah yeah and it's the other thing that i found interesting too is that 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 scatter plot got tighter but a lot of his, it, it, the other thing that flew in the face to me a little bit of conventional wisdom was that it's almost as though his core area got smaller. And you always mm-hmm. hear, you know, a buck, they start to range out during, you know, that, that time of year. I w- like, it would have made more sense to me if it was, if we were looking at a buck that was, say, five and a half, six years old or seven years old. You know what I mean? Like an, a deer that maybe is like, eh, you know, I, I, I've heard, you know, I don't have any proof, of course, right? But, Another piece of conventional wisdom is is that as a buck gets older, in in a lot of instances potentially, right? Again, this is all mm-hmm. hunter wisdom that they start to shrink their they start to shrink their core area. They know where they're safe. They know where danger is. They have a, an area that they feel really safe in, and they kind of know where their doe family groups are at, and they're going to kind of work those doe family groups, and they're just not going to expose themselves, and which can make it harder to kill them. It can also make it potentially easier to kill them. And so this would have looked like to me, I would have been like, yeah, this makes sense if this is like a six-year-old buck but like and when i'm looking at a three and a half year old i'm going man that's like a teenager or like a 21 year old like yeah. he should be out partying <laughs> you know what i mean like <laughs> right like, throw like, caution to the wind right yeah. right exactly and so that's the other part that really kind of um i guess surprised me was like how tight his core area was was were any of these areas you know i, I guess let me ask this question first so you have bucks that are colored. i'm assuming you have a bunch of does that are colored in this same area too right Unfortunately, we do not. Oh, okay. I wish we did. These are bucks only. Okay. Because you can probably figure out where my next question was going. My next question was, is like, you know, the, this pre-rut or this uh, peak rut kind of area, it'd be, I'd be curious to know if any of these bedding areas are adjacent downwind or how close they may or may not be to where we might have doe family groups that are, that are bedding, especially close to these food sources, potentially. 
buddy, you and me both. I, I, I want to know that as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Because that was my first. Kinda, it, that was my, kind of my first thought was was that, and I don't think it describes or would uh, answer all like the the tightening of the core area questions and, and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. I, it would just be a piece of the puzzle, but it would be interesting to kind of kind of consider. But, but I mean, based on what you know about deer biology and behavior and things of that, I mean, what would be your gut feeling around like, you know, looking at the landscape there, you know, would you feel like some of these areas are kind of prime locations for, you know, him bedding downwind or close to a doe bedding area? Oh, I, I, absolutely. I, I have no doubt that's what's going on. I, ju- I just wish we could quantify it and, and prove it. Hmm. Um, yeah. So, I mean, like if you're looking at that figure, um, if he's down in that little uh, the little cover spot mm-hmm. south of the big, the larger, I, I, you know, I, I bet a thousand dollars. There's a, a doe social group located in that in that wood block, right. you know, to the north. Yeah. Um, He's going to be in proximity of that. Right, right. Yeah. And here's another way to think about this. Clint. You, you, you touched on some things that are really interesting. And um, we actually uh, were hoping to get it launched right before deer season. But we, we have put all of this together, all of these analyses together in a, in a document. And it's going to be uh, free of charge, free to download, print yourself, the whole deal. Um, but, but we're looking at a lot of this stuff like, uh, and, and here's one I, I think you might think is interesting is that it's the way we talk about the, the buck's home range. And there, there's so much, so many assumptions and the way you kind of think of that. And so what happens is, is we think that the buck's home range is getting bigger during the rut, for example. But it's all based on scale. And here's what I mean. When when you look at then the the daily footprint or weekly footprint of most of these bucks, it's about the same. But what happens during the rut is that there is a shift. And so in, in, instead of using uh, 50 acres in one day and then the very next day using the same 50 acres, is that it may move over. It may overlap a little bit with the original 50 acres, but there's only a little bit of overlap. And so he's using a new 50 acres adjacent mm-hmm. to it. And then a week later, the new... So it's like, are we talking about a daily scale of where the buck is at, a weekly scale, or a seasonal scale? So when this seasonal home range gets bigger, it's just because collectively, all of those weekly home ranges are not on top of each other they're adjacent to each other wow that's you know what's that's an amazing way to to look at it and think about it and and i think that as hunters we probably think about it almost more seasonally right and i think Mm -hmm. and if i were to venture guess i don't think anyone would kind of frame it this way just in a podcast conversation but i would bet dollar to donuts the guys that are killing mature deer consistently may not think of it that way but that's how they break down their hunts is that they think about the home range of the deer and and, and that and that's and i think how we talk about it in kind of colloquial terms or in hunter terms is probably especially when we talk about october is chasing the food sources right Mm -hmm. because you hear a lot of hunters i mean that you know we talk a lot about you know making sure you know what is the dominant food source in your particular area for that you know two three days you have to hunt 
during that week or whatever the whatever the case is because chances are that's where the deer are going to be congregating you know um yeah and that's just that's like the deer hunter way of of saying it but what they're really doing is chasing that deer's home range based on how he's shifting yeah yeah exactly well well said well said exactly yeah that's amazing and another thing that's interesting about these shifts is uh they they can uh they can be the time can correspond very well from year to year not now i'm not talking about just 50 acres one day and moving over 50 acres but coming to a new area so like one of these deals before the rut and you have a shift where again look you were looking at our stuff on instagram you saw some pretty fantastic examples that we've mm-hmm. posted where these you know some of these bucks will go over 10 miles yeah They'll spend a whole bunch of time during the summer in one spot, a whole bunch of time pre-rut, and then bam, they shift and move 10 miles away. What is really, to me, I think the most interesting part of that is the internal clock that they have. There's a lot of repeat repeatability from year to year when they do this. And really, there's a lot of good hunters out there that over the years, from their trail camera inventory, remember and document that this camera and this woodlot or whatever this trail i started picking up this buck on this day or this week and if you're letting those uh those good good antlered middle-aged bucks pass like i hope we are then that's something to keep in mind that that place where you had the sighting or that place where you got the photo of it you need to think about literally being in that spot next year and hunting that for a couple of days the next year because the data are saying that's a, that's pretty reliable. Yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned that because one of the things over the past probably I, r- I run a fair amount of trail cameras, um, and one of the things after I kind of had you know uh, enough data um, on a couple of the pieces that I hunt locally um, to me. I primarily kind of focus on a lot of kind of community kind of scrape areas um, is a lot of what I kind of try to, you know, spend my time around and what I've kind of found, especially around those areas. um, I actually hunt dates more than I hunt almost anything else. Um, Like even more so than like terrain features and stuff like that, so to speak, because I've watched over the course of a handful of years. um, I'll just give you an example. So last year was, I think the, for not this past season, but the season before, um, there was a really good deer I was chasing in a particular area, and I had him on trail camera <clears throat> earlier in the year, and I couldn't quite catch up with him. Like, yeah, I missed him by like a day here and there. It was a really good buck. And but what I had noticed was like you know this one area just really kind of turned on at a specific time. You know this deer showed up earlier than usual, right? Like it wasn't it wasn't rut. It was around like the fifteenth of October here in the northeastern Pennsylvania, right? So that's kind of we're not kind of into pre-rut yet we're kind of there's just starting to check some things out but maybe it's one way to phrase it and i was like you know what the next year i was like as long as i have the right wind i was like i'm gonna go in and hunt that date or the day before or day after depending on when i get the right wind you know i was like i have a feeling mm-hmm. that that buck or a mature buck will be back because i started looking back through a bunch of my trail camera pictures over the course of like regardless of where it was at around a sp- around that kind of time frame and then I talked to a couple of my buddies who also run a lot of trail cameras. And what we kind of realized was that all of us or the three of us have always seen the first mature deer in an area will come 
10-day scrape or at least check it, usually in that kind of like anywhere from like 10th, like 15th, 12th, 16th, somewhere in there, a day or two on, on either side, give or take. But in that time frame, he'll give you one chance to kill him before like essentially before rut happened, right? And if you're there, then you're mm-hmm. in the chips. If you're not, then you're probably going to have to wait and just take your chances during the rut. And so in going back and looking at all that, I started kind of paying more attention to that stuff. And sure enough, this year I sat that spot one year to the date and it wasn't the same buck, but it was, it was a a mature deer that I had on camera earlier in the year. And he's the one who came through at like three o'clock in the afternoon, same day. Wow. And, and I started, so it got me thinking, I started going back and looking at other spots that I had and I almost. I don't want to say I hunt exclusively like that, but if there are a particular deer that I'm trying to kill or like maybe two or three that I'm like, okay, two, any one of these three will do, you know, I start following them in that, uh, in that regard, uh, in relationship to dates. And then I'll figure out what dates are going to be in what areas. And then that's where I go hunt once I have the right one. I think that is really smart. Really, really smart. Yeah. And I had a bunch of great encounters last year using that, um, that deer I should have killed. He was at 18 yards. I just, he came, I was expecting him to come from the North. He came from, or actually I was expecting him to come from, uh, East and he came from the West. Um, so he kind of surprised me and we kind of, I saw him too late. And I didn't know which deer it was right away. Cause his head was behind some brush. I couldn't tell which bucket was one. I wanted to shoot one. I was going to let go. And by the time I could tell which one he was, it was, I didn't have time to get my bow back. He was, he was, I didn't have enough cover between he and I to, to make it happen is the moral of the story. But right. it was just interesting hearing you say that because that's something I've actually taken to heart and hunt almost, I don't want to say exclusively, but it is probably like 70% of my strategy. Mm-hmm. You're in, you're out. I think that is, I think that is really wise. And uh, stories like you and other, I mean, I've just heard it so often recently. Uh, hunters in the Midwest, especially where you have, you know, very distinct areas where cover is going to be. Uh, they, they've been been doing this for a really long time, and it's just it's just fascinating with the the GPS collar data we have now that it it fully supports that. Yeah. You know, the, what hunters have been seeing it can be fully explained with the data we're collecting. So yeah, really I mean, smart way to go about it. Yeah, I mean, the data will just tell you if you just pay attention to it because you know that that same spot. It's um uh. I had always hypothesized that there was always an early doe in that area, um, but could mm-hmm. never prove it. But this year I got uh, a, a, a fawn drop and based on backdating the, the date uh, of the fawn, that doe would have had to been bred somewhere between the 15th and the 19th of October, like around the 20th, like I guess would be like somewhere between like the 15th and the 20th that week. Oh, in order- so for you, that's about two weeks ahead of peak. Yeah. Yeah. And so, it, yeah. And, and it told me a lot. Cause I was like, all right, well, you know, and then the other thing I do is like, I kind of figure out like when does are going to come in and doe family groups, keep their, their, their doe estrus state from that's passed on for the mom. So as long as the family group stays intact, like that mm-hmm. area should turn on the same time year over year over year. And so I use right. that coupled with like my truck camera data, coupled with fawn drop dates and stuff like that to kind of figure out when my prime times are, because I can probably get prime hunts two to three different times if I know all those things as opposed to just relying on rut or pre-rut or whatever the case is. I probably have a good date early. I probably have a good date in pre-rut and I probably have a good date during rut. Clint, that is really strategic. I, th- I think that is a uh, really smart strategy right there. 
So good advice. Yeah, I should have I should have went to school for wildlife biology, man. I think I missed my call. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you you might have kept me from a job, so I'm glad you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so, man, one last thing I want to transition to here a couple a couple points is just you know I know you guys have done a lot of observations related to pressure and decreased movement during you know daylight hours and, and, and things of that nature, and I think and that's one of those things I think where hunter intuition is uh, on the on the right side of the data, maybe is one way to say it. Right. Um, but I'm just curious when you guys look at that, is there any type of break point of the amount of pressure or the, um, time, maybe the duration of pressure might be a better way to say it, that a buck will withstand before he be- begins really kind of reducing his, his daylight movement. Um, yeah, and and we'll have this fully uh, described with graphs and so forth in this this document we put out this fall. But um, it, it was really hard to to find those threshold, those breaking points you're talking about. And, and and what we decided to do was we we broke hunting pressure up into thirds. And what I mean by that is during the hunting season, there's always going to be some element of of pressure. And, and and I think a lot of people think that hunting pressure is only defined as an encounter with the deer where the deer realizes a hunter is in a stand or cuts your trail and the deer blows and runs off. But I, I think pressure is deer just realizing that over time, hunters are in the field. They are also hearing ATVs. They're hearing truck doors slam. They're human scent is wafting all around you know and so what we did the way we broke it up was using the days where we know how many hunters were on the study area on a particular day and we had it into the uh the lower 33 percent the middle 33 percent and and the upper 33 percent and and really it was that upper 33 percent is where we saw most of a behavioral change the thing about it was, is that the behavioral change wasn't predictable in where the bucks are going to go. So let, let me lay out like we would hope we would have found. Let, let's come up with, say, two forest types. Again, this is just out of simplicity. Let's say that when there's no hunting pressure, deer or bucks are more, more often in the upland hardwoods where our acorn producing tree, you know, um, and, and that's where the deer are at. And then hunters come in, bow hunters, et cetera. They figure out hunters are there. So they move to the bottomland hardwoods where it may not be as accessible, you know, because of swampland and so forth. Right. But we, we didn't see that. What we found is that when hunting pressure got, got worse and worse, or when hunting pressure was at its extreme, is there was no pattern. There was no pattern whatsoever. So individual bucks were making individual decisions on where they spent time. And and keep in mind, all we can do to classify what we would call a vegetation type is is what the satellite and aerial photos give us. And so we typically break them down into, like I mentioned, it's a pine or conifer forest or evergreen forest or upland hardwoods or bottomland hardwoods or fallow field or herbaceous area things like that and when when hunting pressure uh was again that top 33 percent there was no discernible definable pattern whatsoever 
And kind of going back to something you alluded to early earlier, what we think is that when the pressure is on, individually, these bucks are just figuring out where these safe spots are at and where they can hunker down. And it does not matter if the surrounding forest type or vegetation type is bottomland hardwood, if it's a fallow field, if it's an upland hardwood pine, it doesn't matter. There was no pattern. They just go to places where they know they're going to be safe. So as a whole, there's no, what, so let me ask this. Was there, when they found safety and not as a group, but say, was there an individual buck or that you saw that once he found safety, that was a spot of consistency for him, but as a group, they were kind of, uh, there was not a pattern as a group, or did you see any patterns emerge on an individual basis? I, I, I can't answer that very well. That that's going to be part of this next analysis, Got it. Okay. but, but if I were to, based on the, 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 the previous analyses, I would say that it's going to be very individualistic. Hmm. Okay. And a particular buck, being an individual, will probably have several spots that he goes, but you're not going to be able to use the overstory vegetation to predict where that spot is going to be. Right, right. It's all going to be based on, it doesn't matter if the overstory is oak trees, pine trees, whatever. Right. It's going to be, what is the composition underneath? So how long after, so when you have a place that's pressured, right, and you see them you know, kind of scattering with, with uh, very little, you know, to no predictability. How long after, I guess, the height of the pressure that they've received has kind of waned? How long after that do they resume back to kind of normal, you know, normal travel, normal daylight activity, you know, in, or, do, or do they permanently kind of scarred, if you will, and that they kind of remain altered for a pretty significant period of time? I think there have been two analyses done that speak to that pretty well. And one of them was at MSU and one of them was at Auburn. The The one at MSU was more about how much time pressured, how many days of pressure does it take before a buck starts altering its behavior? And, and that was essentially three days. Hmm. After, after three or more days, the, the movement characteristics of the buck started changing and so he may be still in a, in a general area clint but how he navigates the landscape is decidedly different than before that disturbance took place now on the follow-up auburn they did a wonderful study too the way they looked at it was they kept track of where these gps collared bucks were and places where hunters were so they know the point in time a hunter was here at this stand and a hunter was there at that stand. And then they went and looked at one day after, two day at, three day at, et cetera, et cetera. And it, and it took about five days before a buck was going to come into sightability. I, I think that's the right metric they use, but kind of sightability of that stand. So more or less, it was once the buck knew a hunter was there, it was close to a week before he was going to feel comfortable coming back into that general area again. Yeah. So the moral of the story there is, uh, don't be detected. <laughs> yeah. You know, pick, pick uh, your days, yeah. have an exit strategy. Think about the wind. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. 
is there anything in all the buck movement kind of work that you've done um, that stands out to you? Is there anything that has surprised you? Like when you think back of all the work that you've done, like whether it's the, the betting stuff or whether it's the, you know, pressure daylight movement kind of work. Is there anything to you that really kind of stands out where you're like, man, that was pretty surprising, even like either as a hunter or even academically. Um, I, I'm, I'm probably going to deflate the, the balloon here. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the thing that I think I, I have enjoyed the most and, and, and not because people want to argue about it or anything like that. It's again, being a hunter and, and me having those preconceived from, from my experiences and talking to other hunters is just about general movements relative to certain conditions. And the one thing that, that's very obvious with the data, and, and it's very gratifying to me to hear other researchers in other states say very similar things. I was listening to Dwayne Diefenbach from Penn State, what was interviewed a couple of weeks ago, and he, he was basically saying the same thing. Um, there, there's just really not this predictable event other than the rut, you know, that's really going to change th their movement dynamics. Um, but if, if you think about it like this, Clint, um, deer have to eat every day, plain and simple. They got to eat every day. Those movements generally are going to be based around sun up and sundown. Now, some days they might move a little earlier, some days they might move a little later, but they're centered on the sun coming up and, and the sun coming down. And let me ask you, Clint, does the moon being full or not, does it affect your appetite? It does not. It doesn't affect mine either. I get hungry every day. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if it's a full moon or a new moon or anything like that. Right. And and that's just that's just what we see. Now, now that is not to say that there aren't particular bucks. There, there's always going to be an individual buck that may follow an, a, a pattern. And hey, if you can pattern an individual buck, we look at everything collectively at a population scale and we talk about the averages. So, you know, hunting wise, if you've got a system that works with you relative to weather, relative to the moon, I'm in no way at all discouraging that or saying it's not it's not real and doesn't work. If it works, keep doing it. But the advice that that we give is when you look at 50 or 60 bucks with collars on them. And looking at their behavior over two to three years, this is just this is these are just our findings. Deer, deer move every single day. Yeah, yeah. It, it's funny that you went there because I was actually as you were going, I was like, is he gonna is he gonna hit the moon? Because that was gonna be <laughs> that was gonna be my next uh, next question. I, you know, I've 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 watched it in the past. I, I hunted a season by it um, just because I was curious, um, and I didn't see anything that would make me say that I'm only going to follow the moon and hunt, put it, put it that way. Um, so I, I really don't follow it with any kind of, uh, with any vigor any longer, what I will pay attention to only, and this is just, again, another piece of hunting kind of, uh, uh, you know, I guess anecdotal <laughs> evidence or information is just, I do like to kind of hunt, uh, just like I guess right after a full moon, just because the, there's more light in the sky. And so I feel like they will come back to bed just a little bit later. So if I want to hunt a morning, I can get an opportunity potentially that might be the thing that delays mm -hmm. them and keeps them out 
in a in a food source for 15 minutes longer than it typically would that gives me that 15 minutes of of shootable light that i might get that's really Mm -hmm. the only thing that i pay attention to is is things like that but uh but yeah, there's a lot of people that swear by it. There's a lot of people I know who kill deer by it. And I'm the same as you. I'm mm-hmm. like, man, if it works for you and it's what it takes for you to be confident in the field, then confidence is a hell of a drug. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. The placebo effect can be really, really powerful. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, hey, yeah. I want to be sensitive to your time, buddy. Uh, I appreciate you coming on. I always enjoy talking to you. Um, I can't wait for that uh, for those uh, uh, sheets to come out. Um, I'm going to be yeah. in line to download uh, download those. Uh, but before I let you go, let people know where they can find out more about the things you guys are working on. The second part of this, this betting study that you guys kind of have going on and where they can find that sheet when those sheets are available this fall. Yeah, sure. Sure thing. So uh, you can you can always keep in touch with us on social media. And uh, that is uh, Facebook as well as Instagram, Twitter. And we're we're really starting to develop our YouTube channel more. And so that is growing. We're tr- really trying to add videos to that. Uh, the discussion that we do, we try to do one every three weeks to a month, and I, I wish we could do more. It's just time is limited, but we have a podcast called Dear University. And so when when this publication on all of this deer movement data uh, is ready to go online, we will make sure to post that everywhere on all the social media accounts, on our podcast, et cetera. We'll actually even have a download link will be on our website, which is msudeerlab.com. So you can you can go there and download it as well. But we will be sure to, to make sure everyone knows. We'll get it out there that it's available and, and available. Awesome. Well, hey, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, good luck this fall. And uh, hopefully you don't have to wait till retirement to get out a few more days. <laughs> thank you, Clint. Always appreciate the opportunity to, to talk to you. And uh, thank you very much. Enjoyed it. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. If you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And while you're at it, head over to YouTube and give us a sub there as well. I'd be super appreciative if you do those couple things for me. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Spartan Forge, Exodus, and Skull Brew Coffee Company. And until next time, we'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do hard shit hat for those of us who like to embrace microdosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.